Are you gonna get more coffee? Because it, it looked like you were about to get up. Do you want me to get up? Are you offering? Because, you know, I did get up with Jonah last night. Twice. Oh, are we having an up-in-the-night competition? Because if we are, I win. Hey, uh, can you give me the trivia? Does that stuff even work? I love it. <laughs> yeah. A mouse! What? Oh, my God, I just what? saw a mouse. That... Right behind the stove. That was your scream for a mouse? Well, I've never seen a mouse. I've never had a mouse. How could we have a mouse? You're like the neatest person I know. Well, now you know why I always tell you not to leave crumbs all over the counter. Is this because you think I, I left crumbs on the counter? And the sink? Wait a minute. Are you sure it was a mouse? Yes, I'm sure. What else could it be? Something bigger than a mouse? A rat? No, it was definitely no, not a rat. It, it was be... just a little tiny little mouse. No, no, sure. no, 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 no. There's a little hole here. Uh, will you give me the um, steel wool under, under the sink? Yeah, that'll be good. Okay, plug that up, and nothing is ever gonna get through there <clears throat> again. <clears throat> what is this? I am not the kind of person who has a mouse. I am the kind of person who does not have a mouse. Amazing. What? 12 years of marriage, and this is what it takes a mouse. Shut up. Progress. I win. Good morning and welcome. My name is Chris. Good to have all of you here uh, today. And we're kicking off this new series called uh, It's Complicated. And this is one thing uh, I know we all know is our relationships are extremely, extremely complicated. I mean, there's a lot of things, right, in life that are complicated. Uh, if, if you can't cook at all, I mean, I'm talking at all, you can't cook, then the kitchen is extremely complicated for you. Uh, if, if you're not a tax e expert then, uh, and you do your own taxes, uh, then the tax code is extremely complicated. Uh, if you're not a tech person, anything with an on and off switch becomes extremely complicated for you. But we think about relationships, and that's one thing that we have in common in this room today. We just get that uh, relationships are complicated. If you're dating someone right now, Dating is extremely complicated because you're just trying to figure out the person, trying to figure out what makes them laugh or what <laughs> doesn't make them laugh. You're trying to figure out how they process life. You try to figure out where they've come from, what their passions are. I mean, you're just really in it, just trying to figure out that person. It's kind of like playing chess blindfolded. You just have no clue. You're in it. If you've been married longer than one week, you know, you know marriage is complicated. And, uh, uh, and if this is your first week of marriage, what, what are you doing here? I mean, <laughs> sorry. Uh, right? Marriage is just a complicated uh, a relationship trying to figure it out. Uh, if you have kids, at whatever stage of life your kids are in, you just know that parenting is complicated. I had a good friend years and years and years ago say to me, when I was, I was just in it, you know, one of our kids was in diapers, the other one was, you know, that, that, that three or four-year-old range where just in everything, and I said to him, I said, I can't wait for my kids to get out of this stage, and he goes, Chris, you got, you got to realize this. Parenting doesn't get easier over the years. It just gets different, and I'm like, ah, oh, it's so true, 
Kiera, my oldest, 10, she's going to be 11, and she's a preteen, and she literally says to me, well, Dad, I'm a preteen. I'm like, oh, really? Shocker. Your eyes are always rolling up in the uh, top of your head. I didn't know you were a preteen, right? It was like, thanks for telling me that. I mean, her emotions are up and down and sideways. I mean, raising girls, I wish someone would have told me. It's complicated. You see, one of the things I know, and I think we'd all agree on this, is every single one of us are extremely unique. We're all so different. How we're wired, how we uh, uh, process information, how we interrelate with different people, how we see this world, this one world that we all interact with, the one world that we all are living in, the one world that we have, guess what, we see completely differently. I mean, in a a vastly different way. We see this world. And you see, there's this set of what I call lenses in which we all have in front of our eyes. And they kind of shade the the one world that we get to live in. Now, just know that I'm going to share with you seven lenses. I think there's probably many, many more that we could talk through. And and, and to be very transparent, I'm going to overstate some things and simplify some things. But I think we'll all get the point. You see, one of those lenses that we all look through that shades the same world we live in is gender. Us guys will look through a, a, a certain set of guy lenses. Uh, uh, ladies out there, you, you all uh, look through your set of lenses, which I have come to learn is that that set of lenses is always right. So um, I'm comfortable just knowing that I'm a guy, I'm wrong. Uh, But, right, gender is a lens that we all process this world through. I I came across uh, a few years ago. It was a a great, great in-depth study. I found it on Facebook. And uh, it was was these two images that I think really depicts the differences between uh, 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 women and men. The first image uh, was this pie chart. And it simply said, uh, how women choose shampoo. And uh, it had a list of things, you know, effectiveness, ingredients, recommendations, quantity, quality, smell. Like, I've caught my wife, like, undoing the top of the bottle, smelling it in the store. I'm like, you just put your nose on that, and you're not going to buy it. That's gross. How many other ladies' nose have been on, right? But this is how women, and I showed this to my wife before I decided to use it this weekend because I didn't want to offend anyone. And uh, she's like, no, absolutely. This is how we women choose shampoo. I'm like, wow, that's complicated. The next image uh, simply said how men (laughs) choose shampoo. It looks like this. (laughs) Isn't that true? And I think think, uh, for some of us men, we we could even just erase this, right? Like, I I think my wife, uh, and she might actually try this, you know, you're in the shower, and it's like you just grab whatever is liquid in the shower, and you use it. I'm like, eh, it's liquid. I, maybe it's a shampoo. What's the difference between shampoo and, and conditioner? I don't know. I think my wife could go downstairs to the kitchen, grab the, the big bottle from Costco, big bottle from, of Dawn liquid dish soap. I think she could put that in the shower, and I'd be like, ah, it's liquid. It's soap. It cleans. Hey, it might work, right? It's just simple, but we all get that one of those lenses that we all look and perceive and process this world through is just gender. 
Another lens that we all kind of look and perceive and process this world through is our personality. All of us have different uh, personality types, and there's many, many different personality tests on the web. And uh, we use two within, uh, kind of internally within our staff here at Renaissance. Uh, we use one called Thinking Wavelengths, but uh, another one we use is called Myers-Briggs, and it's probably one of the more popular ones. And I'm an INTJ. And for some of you, you're going to click right in. You're like, oh, I know what INTJ is. You know what the, the, each letter stands for. So for some of you, you've never taken this test. And, uh, but what I've discovered over the years is I've just worked on learning me more is that uh, the INTJ, it, it's out of the 16 different personality types within Myers-Briggs, the INTJ is the rarest of all of them. And I, I don't know what to think about that. I don't know if that's a badge of honor or I should be like, man, I'm really complicated. Uh, but that's who I am. I had my wife take it this week, and uh, it didn't shock me, her results, but she's an ENFP. And so basically, we're the exact opposites. And so just within our personality types, how we process and how we see the world is completely different. And that's okay. It's not good or bad. It's just different. Another way we, uh, another lens that we use uh, to, to look at this world is our childhood. Uh, birth order. There's been a lot of study on birth order, and, and whether you're an only child, or if you're one of two, or three, or five, and uh, what order in that, are you the firstborn, middle, uh, or baby, I'm the baby out of two, and, uh, and so my wife, or my, my uh, 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 sister has a very uh, different view on our childhood than I do, not good or bad, it's just different, uh, and so your birth order uh, has a lot to do with how you see this world. Your parents, have a lot to do with how you see this world. Do, do you have two, two parents or one parent? Or was your dad engaged or not engaged? Did you wish that he was more engaged or did you wish that he was less engaged? Did your parents have a good marriage or, or a difficult marriage? Did they get divorced or not divorced? You wish they would have got divorced, right? There's all these different pieces of your childhood that comes into another lens on how you see this world. 85%. Of everyone's personality is formed by age five. Can we just kind of sit back in that thought a little bit. Age five. I mean, I think about that thought through through kind of the context of me being a dad, and my first five years of being a parent, I had no clue. I wasn't prepared. I wasn't ready. I, mean, I don't think you ever are. But I'm like, I've really messed up my kids. I mean, someday I'm just going to have to say to the counselor, yeah, send me the bill. I messed her up, right? Like, I'm just going to just say, yeah, it's me. I take full blame for it. Early on in our first year of marriage, Kim and I realized that uh, we had to work on our communication skills. And, uh, and uh, I, I was fine because I, I was raised in a, a, a house, a family that uh, we talked through everything. We were a very verbal family, not abusive. It never came close to that line, but we would talk, and we used talk for everything. Talk could mean talking, or talk could mean screaming, yelling, robust dialogue, you name it. We would go at it verbally. But here was the amazing part of my family. We'd always come out with a conclusion at a place where we'd say, okay, that's a great place. But we were a very verbal family. And so I came into our marriage just assuming that everyone was verbal. So I'd get into a discussion with my wife, and I would just start in like I, I knew how to do. And she would shut down and walk away. What do you think that did to me? 
I'm like, come back here. <laughs> you can't walk away. I'm talking. She's like, that's the point. You're talking. I'm not. And what we discovered was how she was raised. She was raised in a house where they just didn't talk at all. Tension would rise. They would stuff it in. And they keep stuffing, keep stuffing, keep stuffing until it exploded. I'm like, well, that's no fun. Let's work it out now. She's like, I don't want to. Not ready yet. I'm not saying one's better than the other, but it's just how we were raised. And here's what I know. Out of the top three reasons why people get divorced, communication is always in the top three. Always. And we realized early on in our marriage, I'm thankful we did, that how we were raised in our childhood was completely different when it comes to communication. Again, not right, wrong. It wasn't that my family was better than her family and her family was better than my family. It was just different. And we had to somehow figure out a way to come together so that we could start actually having conversations together. And I would say some 15 years later, we've gotten better. We still default there, but it's, it's coming. But we've been committed to figuring it out together. You see, your childhood has a big, big piece to how you perceive and look at this world. Another lens is culture. Where were you raised? What country were you raised in? Or maybe if you were raised in the United States, what state were you raised in? Because right, there's nuances amongst all of our states. The interesting thing for me is just the last 18 months of being here, uh, I, you know, I've, I've discovered a whole list of things, but an interesting piece is that we live in Summit, and you can drive 10 minutes I don't care what direction, north, south, east, or west. And you're in a completely different culture. I mean, again, not good or bad, just completely different. And you see, where you were raised and the culture in which you were raised in is another lens of how you see this world. Your spiritual beliefs is another lens. How you see God, what you think about church, right? What your parents thought about God, what your parents thought about church, what, how you were raised and and, and, and your college years, now into your adult years, all of that is another lens. Another lens is friendships. I mean, think about elementary school and middle school and high school and college. And all of us have stories, or at least one, but probably multiple stories, of that kid on that playground that said that comment to you. You can remember. I remember my moment, Fairview uh, uh, grade school. In Bloomington, Normal, Illinois, right by the merry-go-round. It was traumatic. Like, I can remember those moments. And there's great moments, too. It's not all bad. But friendships is another lens in how we process this world. And then we all have life events. Some great, great life events, like having kids. I see this world completely uh, in a different way now, being a father amazing how I view this world now as a dad. So there's great life events that shade your world, but there's also traumatic life events. You know, for some of you, you've had uh, emotional abuse or physical abuse or sexual abuse in your past, and it, sh it has shaded how you see the world. And you see, and we kind of pause in this moment, and we kind of think about this image, and every single one of us has a very unique set of lenses in which we interact with this world. And I, I think we'd all agree with that. 
But here's the tension. In one moment, we're like, yeah, okay, I, I, I'm a unique individual. I see uh, this world uh, compl- in a completely different way than every other single person. But then we leave this moment, and we start interacting with our spouse or our kids or coworkers or friends or you name it. And as soon as it's usually tension, when tension arises, guess what happens? We default back to how we see this world, and we can't understand why they can't see it our way. And so we say things like, well, you always, and I, I don't understand why you, you, you can't understand what I'm saying. And I said, said this, and the other person says, no, well, no, that's not what I heard. I heard you say this. Well, I didn't say that. Well, what I meant. Oh, no, you didn't mean. I didn't mean. Ah, I don't know what's going on. Because we just default back to ourselves. And so we're going to be looking over the next five weeks, just relationships, and how to try to uncomplicate our relationships, because I think we all truly desire to have relationships that are thriving. We do want that. But so many times there's so much tension and stress surrounding our relationships. And so we're going to use the Bible to kind of be our guide as we kind of make our way through this. And we're going to start at the very beginning today. That moment when there was only two human beings on the face of this planet. And guess what? Their relationships with each other were complicated. I mean, just two of them. When you think about how many connections you have relationally, and you're like, ah, there's all these people, so complicated. There was only two people, period, and their relationships uh, with each other and with God. Complicated. So to set up the story, God had created the heavens and the earth. He's created the, the, the stars and the moon and the sun. He created the animals. And then he uh, created the Garden of Eden. He, he himself, God himself, planted the trees and made this amazing place called the Garden of Eden for man and woman. And he placed them there in this perfect uh, place. And then this is where the story takes off. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, just know in this Genesis 3 passage, there's so much here. And uh, I, I just don't have enough time to go through every single little like, twist and turn through Genesis 3. So I might uh, stir up more questions for you than answers. But I'll try to hit the highlights. Like the first one, the serpent. And the serpent uh, was talking. Now, you might just go, huh? Animals are talking. Yes, the animals were talking. Now, we don't know, is it all the animals or just the serpent? Uh, I kind of like to believe that it was just all the animals were talking. It was just one of these common things because Eve's not going to freak out because an animal was talking to her. It's never going to say, and Eve was like, ah, the serpent's talking. This is weird. It never says that. She carries on a conversation. So I like to believe, again, it's not in the Bible. I just like to believe it was common occurrence. They just had conversations with the animals, which would be fascinating. Uh, to know what my dog is thinking right now. But so she's having this conversation with the serpent that's standing upright. And the serpent, what we know, Adam and Eve didn't know this, but uh, uh, the serpent kind of represents that Satan was kind of behind him. Okay? And we find that out throughout the storyline of the Bible. And he goes, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And it's interesting because right away, uh, the serpent is going to just start. Uh, whispering uh, and deceiving Eve, just little whispers. Hey, did God really say 
You can't eat from any tree? Go back to Genesis chapter 2, and when God was physically planting the Garden of Eden, making this a very incredible, special place for man and woman, God planted two very specific trees. One was a tree of life. We find out in Genesis 3 that, that when you would eat from the tree of life, uh, you would never die. And the only other time in the Bible that we read about the tree of life is in Revelation, where there's actually going to be two trees of life planted on each side of the road for eternity. And it says that the fruit's abundant. Where for those spending eternity with God, will eat from that tree to live for all eternity. So there's a tree of life that they could eat from. The second one was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God just said, don't eat from that tree. Uh, God didn't give Adam and Eve a list of rules. He didn't write down hundreds and hundreds of laws of what they couldn't do. He had one. Eat from all of this. Enjoy this perfect place. I created all of this for you. Just don't eat from that one tree. And the serpent starts kind of whispering and deceiving, saying, ah, did God really say? Did God really say? Did God really say? And then listen to Eve's response. She said, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Let's go back to verse 2. Two things happens here. Eve takes something away from what God had said, and then she adds something to what God had said. Because you go back to Genesis chapter 2, when God kind of gives the, in, the instructions uh, about what they could or could not do. The one thing they couldn't do was eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He gives these very simple instructions. And you see, what Eve does is she drops a very key word. She just says, we may eat fruit. What God literally said was, you may eat freely of the fruit in the garden. That word freely is better translated, uh, eat until you're content. You see, God, from the very beginning, was this amazing, generous God. He himself made the Garden of Eden. He planted the trees. He made this perfect place on this perfect planet for Adam and Eve. And he said, eat abundantly. Eat until you're content. Consume. I have given you. And for some reason, Eve removes this word. She just removes it. But then she adds something to what God said. Verse 3. Catch this. You must not touch it. God never said that. He never said it. He said, just don't eat from the tree. He didn't say, don't touch it. I mean, I'm sure they could have climbed the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'm sure they could have built a tree house in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'm sure they could have tied up a hammock and swung together underneath the cool breeze, right? God didn't care about them touching it. He just said, don't eat it. And what's interesting, and it, I tell you, it, it's something we should pay attention to from the very beginning of time. It's so easy to twist God's words, to remove God's, God's words, and to add to God's words. It's a danger for all of us. That's why we did this series called The Road, and we spent an entire day on the, on the Bible being our GPS. I said, hey, let the Bible be your guide. Don't add to, don't take away. Let the Bible be your guide. 
Because it's so easy to twist the words to fit the context you want it to fit. And it's been happening since the beginning of time. What well, goes on, verse 4. And uh, the serpent says, you will not certainly die. I mean, can you just hear kind of the sarcasm in his voice? I mean, you've got to spend a little time trying to read between the lines a little bit. Like, come on, Eve, you're not going to die. God just created you. Why would he go through all of that to create you? And there's only one of you. And for him to kill you. Shoot, Eve, look at Adam. He still has a scar where God took the rib out of him. Like, he just got done. Not, God wouldn't do that. Come on, Eve. No way. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, from the very beginning of time, the serpent has been deceiving and whispering. See, all of us, we only have one top priority. There's only one slot for one thing in our top priority of our life. And God wants to be that top priority. God wants to be number one in our lives. And the struggle, and we see the struggle start in the garden. The struggle is we put other things in their top priority. And we move God to two or three or number 10 or number 30 on the list. Our pride goes in the top priority. Our money goes in the top priority. Other relationships goes in our top priority. Our hobbies go in our top priority. Everything else gets put in the top priority. And God's saying, hey, hey, what about me? I'm God. I should be number one. And we go back to the garden. Guess what the serpent was saying? Ah, oh, come on. You eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You're going to be like God. You get to go to number one. Don't you want to be number one, Eve? You don't want to be number two to God. You want to be number one. It goes on. It says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for, for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Moving on. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. I've been asked before, you know, Chris, do you really think that God was like physically walking in the garden? And I think he was. You go back to Genesis 2, and something interesting happens. In verse 8 of Genesis 2, uh, the, the author uses a, a Hebrew word for put or to, to place. And it's a very common word, you know, like we would say to place a cup of coffee here. It's just a common word in Hebrew they would use for put or place. But in verse 15 of chapter 2, when God places Adam into the Garden of Eden, the place that he planted, the place... He created this special place. The author changes the word. He doesn't use the common word for put or to place. He uses this one Hebrew word that's only used 
throughout the first five books of the, of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. And this word, this Hebrew word he uses, always refers to, refers to safety or rest, which is kind of one in uh, the same thought, or God's presence. Think about this. God's desire from the very beginning was to have a relationship with Adam and Eve. I don't think it was uncommon for God to be strolling through the garden. I don't think it was uncommon for Adam and Eve to have this conversation with God. God desires to have a relationship. And you see, the entire storyline of the entire Bible is about God's redemptive plan. It was about him creating, creating uh, man and woman in his image, about them choosing to sin, go against God's plan, and then God saying, I want to have a relationship with my creation again. That there's this, this, this cavern that has been created because of sin. And that's why God sent his son to die, to close that gap, so that one day we may have uh, spend eternity with him again in relationship. You see, I don't think it was, it was uncommon. God strolling through the garden, and Adam and Eve was like, yeah, we see God in the garden all the time because we have a relationship with him. But they hid. Why did they hide? Because of sin. It goes on. But the Lord God called the man. Where are you? He answered. I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And listen to the two questions that... Uh, uh, God asked, and he said, who told you that you were naked? Now think about that as, as the first question God asked. And I just wonder if God paused. Hey, Adam, who told you you were naked? You've been naked this entire time. How do you know you're naked now when you've been naked? And naked wasn't bad, but now naked is bad. And I wonder... If God just paused and waited, waiting for Adam to confess, waiting for Adam to repent, just waiting for Adam to step forward and say, God, man, we messed up. I messed up. We ate from the one tree, the one rule. We broke the one rule. God, we're, we're sorry. I wonder if God just waited. I don't know if they would have uh, confessed, if they would have repented, if it would have changed anything. I'm not saying the consequences would have changed or not. I don't know. But I wonder in that moment, if God was just waiting for them to, to own it. And then the second question. Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And then what happens next? I mean, it is like, I mean, it's like the story could be written today. How they responded. Because it's just classic human response. We've all done this before. We're all guilty of this. This is Adam. I love Adam. The man said, the woman, <laughs> the woman, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit, fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Way to go, Adam. Way to be the leader in the relationship. Way to be the spiritual leader. Way to take one for your bride. Way to own it. I mean, he just, he didn't even pause and think. He was like, uh, her fault. And did you notice who else he blamed? God. Hey, God, the woman you put here, I didn't ask for her. I didn't choose her. You imposed her on me. 
There's no one else I could choose from. God, it's your fault. You did it. And think about that. We, we are all so quick to blame everyone else. When so many times we should just kind of look at ourselves. And you see, Eve was no different. She just blamed someone different. She said, when God said, uh, said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. You have Adam blaming the woman and God. You have Eve blaming the serpent. And in all reality, they should have looked at themselves. You see, there's another lens that all of us look through that filter our world. It's a lens that darkens the world we live in. And that filters sin. And you think about how our pride or how our ego or how our uh, identity issues or how our desperate need for affirmation from uh, each other when God says all we need is affirmation from him our self selfishness our sin has this powerful way to darken the world as we look through our lenses you see we it's easy for us to default to a myth. It's a myth that, 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 you know, on one side we want to believe, but there's moments where you just need to pause and realize it's just not true. And this is what the myth says. I can and need to change you. You see, it, it's a lot easier for us to focus on everyone else's issues you know why? Because we don't have to worry about ourselves. I mean, it's marriage counseling 101. Well, if she, well, if he, well, if she changed, well, if he changed, well, if she didn't, well, if he didn't, well, if she communicated, well, if he communicated, well, if she cared, well, if he cared, right? And you go back and forth and back and forth, and in all reality, you can't change anyone. Do you realize that? You see, here's the truth in the statement. I need help to change me, and I'm committed to understanding you. I'll come back to the, the I need help to change me. But you see, if we would just all understand that we should be committed, whoever those people are, our spouse, our kids, our work associates, our friends, people in general, if we start to be highly committed to understanding how that person sees the world, right? Their gender, their personality, their childhood, their life events, their spiritual journey, their friendship circles, their culture that they were raised in, all of those factors and many more. If we start to be highly committed to understanding each other, guess what? It would start to uncomplicate our relationships just would but would uncomplicate our relationships more is if we would spend a whole bunch of time working on ourselves and there's a reason why I wrote 
I need help to change because guess what? We need each other to help each other to change. But you know what God knows? Is we need more than ourselves or another self-help book or another person to help us change. We need his power. And the Bible is clear that when you turn and when you put your faith into Jesus Christ, that, that we're given, if you're a Christ follower, you're given the power of the Holy Spirit to live in you and through you. We did a whole series back in January called Now What? And we worked through Ephesians chapter th- uh, 3. And at the very end of Ephesians chapter 3, uh, Paul writes, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more, more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. See, my challenge for all of us in this series We need to start working on ourselves. It's going to take some great people speaking in to your life and to my life. But it's going to take the work of the Holy Spirit working in you. Because you can't change other people. You can't. But you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can change you. And if you change you, guess what? It will uncomplicate your relationships, at least beginning. So this week, I sat down at my computer, and uh, I wrote an email to my wife. I said, Dear, dear Kim, I know that uh, I am the perfect husband that you always have dreamt of. Okay, maybe it didn't quite say that. I said, Dear Kim, I'm going to ask you to be extremely honest with me. And if you know my wife, Kim, she's, she, doesn't have a trouble, uh, she doesn't have a trouble being extremely honest. Um, I said, I want you to be extremely honest with me. And I, I want you to think about, to pray about the top three things that I can do to help make our marriage better. And what are the things that I'm doing that's hindering our marriage? In that email, I said, I want you to be brutally honest with me. What are the blind spots? What are the things that I'm doing that's creating tension in our marriage? Can you please take some time and then email me back? I'm anticipating her reply. I really am in a weird, weird way. But here's my challenge for all of you. Every one of you need to write that email or text message, or phone call. If you're old school, get a pen and paper and a stamp. You need to write someone that email. Because sometimes we need another set of eyes to highlight the areas in our life that we need to change. This entire series is about us uncomplicating ourselves. That's what it's about. Because guess what? That's the one person in this world. You, myself, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can change us. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for our time together. 
Lord, I pray that emails or text messages or Facebook messages or handwritten notes are sent to that one person who knows us the best. Lord, I pray for, for Kim as she works on those three things. Because, Lord, I desperately want to honor and serve my wife in the best way. And I know I have a lot of areas in my life I need to work on. So, Lord, I pray that we all have very bold conversations this week. In your name I pray. Amen. God bless. Have just an amazing week. 